0: This is Crowcast, the podcast from Crow in the UK, a leading audit, tax, advisory and risk firm with global reach and local expertise. In our podcast, you will hear from our specialists, offering insight and pragmatic advice to businesses of all sizes, professional practices, non-profit organisations, pension funds and private clients.
1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Crowcast. My name is Andy Hammond. I'm a director in Crow's Employment Tax Advisory Group, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Robin Newman, one of our specialists. Robin's going to talk about the changes to accommodation benefits and how they will affect employers who provide living accommodation, where this has been historically treated as exempt from tax under a non-statutory concession, but this has just been withdrawn by HMRC. Robin, what are the background to these changes? Thank you, Andy. Well, this is
0: an interesting topic that can be quite complex to deal with because of the historical issues involved with provision of accommodation by employers. In a nutshell, the Office of Tax Simplification was asked to look at the way living accommodation benefits were treated for tax purposes, and that included looking at the way they were calculated and the exemption from tax for certain types of employment roles. The revenue agreed that the current rules were complex, unfair, difficult to administer and outdated, so both they and the OTS saw the need for some change. The OTS published its findings in July 2014, but since then the revenue have only taken one measure to simplify things uh, on this front, and that is to withdraw a long-standing concession for what's termed representative occupier exemption. They probably regarded this as an easy win in what is a complicated issue. The Revenue haven't issued any further changes or guidance in relation to living accommodation. And I think this is the only area that's still outstanding from all those reviewed and reported on by the OTS in around 2014. The Revenue did promise further consultation, but to my knowledge, that has not been undertaken yet. Um, And I think possibly this is on the revenues too hard pile to deal with at present.
1: Okay, um, so you mentioned a couple of things there that we worth um, expanding on. Um, the complexity of the current legislation and the concession that was withdrawn by HMRC. Can you give us more information about these issues, Robin? Yes, certainly.
0: What I'll do is comment on the concession that's been withdrawn first. This is an old exemption that applied to the provision of living accommodation that was in place before 6th of April 1977 prior to the introduction of the current statutory exemptions. When the new Benefits Code was introduced, any post that qualified as representative occupation for the provision of lieu accommodation continued to be treated as exempt, provided those conditions for exemption still applied. I won't go into the detail, but broadly the concession applied where the accommodation was occupied contractually, rent-free, and for the better and more effectual performance of the employment duties. The conditions for this concession were easier to satisfy than the current statutory exemptions. When the exemptions applied, they could cover groups of workers, and we've come across this being applied particularly in boarding schools to teaching staff generally who were contractually required to live on or near the school site and who possibly had minimal out-of-hours or emergency call-out duties and responsibilities. As I explained, once this exemption has been established, The revenue never really challenged it unless there were clear reasons to do so. For example, if the employer started to charge rent to the staff for the accommodation. What this meant was that over time, employees were in the habit of not reporting any living accommodation benefits, but lost sight of the reasons why this was the case. Over the years, staff changed, revenue correspondence was lost, or it was filed away so safely that successors couldn't find it. When it came to completed PLFDs for each year, we simply followed what was done in the previous years. As we hadn't
1: reported accommodation benefits for anyone, we just followed the same path. That's interesting, Robin. So are you saying that some employers possibly didn't or still don't realise that they were using the concession to claim exemption for some of the living accommodation benefits? And if that's the case, doesn't that now give them a problem um, from the 6th of April this year? Yeah, potentially it does. What they'll need to do is to review their current
0: practice with reporting uh, living accommodation. First, to see on what basis the exemptions are being claimed. And second, to see whether the circumstances under which they provide living accommodation to staff will still satisfy the statutory exemption.
1: Okay, so the concessionary treatment, the non-statutory treatment has been withdrawn. And we're now looking at the, the statutory exemptions. Um, how do we know if they apply? What what would what employers now have to look at in terms of ensuring they they're compliant with those those uh, rules?
0: Well, this is back to your previous question about the complexity of the current legislation and how it applies. It's also the reason HMRC, along with the OTS, recognise the need for change uh, and the fact that it's almost seven years since the OTS reported and. Uh, that nothing significant has changed apart from the withdrawal of that concession for representative occupiers. In terms of statutory exemptions, there are three that we look at, but there is one that relates to security issues. This is pretty much as rare as to, so we don't really need to worry about the security exemption. The other two are much more common and uh, where the accommodation Uh, is provided, one, for the proper performance of the employment and typically applies to roles such as caretakers and gradsmen living on site with responsibility for security or 24-hour call-out, and secondly, for the better performance of the employment and where it's customary for living accommodation to be provided with those roles. For example, staff in boarding schools with pastoral or out-of-hours duties, and in these cases, HMRC, do specify in their internal manuals certain roles uh, that they more or less accept uh, that will always qualify for the exemption. Those are only a couple of examples of the roles that are covered by these exemptions. The revenue do provide lists of types of employments and roles they consider will qualify for exemption, although it's by no means an exhaustive list. In practice, employers need to be able to justify the exemption to the revenue Mm. if requested or typically where the revenue carry out their compliance checks. At times where there is significant doubt as to whether the exception applies or where there's no clear parallel with the examples in the revenue manuals, employers may need uh, to seek clearance from the revenue. This would be based entirely on the facts and the strength of the argument and it can be quite subjective. Employers don't need to agree this with the revenue if they're happy that the exemption applies and that they've taken reasonable view to get to that decision. It's good practice, however, to make sure that you keep a record uh, of the reasoning so that it can be produced to the revenue if necessary. In the case of the second exemption, the better performance, the customary one, there are two legs to get over. And if you fail on either, the whole case will fail. The revenue usually tackle these by considering the customary leg first, because this is the part that they can most easily turn down, uh, and there's case law to support the revenue, strict interpretation of this. As a rule of thumb, you need to be able to demonstrate that more than 50% of employees in a similar role were provided with living accommodation, uh, and that this has been the case for a considerable period. Revenue rely on case law in these circumstances, and some of the judges' decisions can be a little obscure. In addition, the revenue do interpret some of the principles very, very narrowly. The ODC is always on the employer to demonstrate this, uh, satisfy the conditions, uh, and for the customary point, that could be almost impossible outside of the revenue's accepted examples. However, it should prevent employers from arguing their cases where they consider it's
1: justified. Okay, so that feels quite complicated, Robin, to apply unless you fall squarely into one of, the, uh, one of the categories that you've just gone through. Um, what would we, what would we um, do about employees that are perhaps on the periphery who may or may not qualify or, or fall in those uh, statutory exemptions? What would be your approach or, or advice in, in those cases?
0: Uh, that's the $64,000 question. What I'll do is give you an example of a kind of situation that we've been coming across fairly frequently recently following the removal of the uh, concession representative occupiers. We've seen this type of situation a lot so it is a general example based on lots of employers circumstances but highlighting some of the common issues and I won't give you an answer. Our example is based on a boarding school that's been in existence since the 1850s on the same site with accommodation dating back to that date and with some more recently purchased accommodation say in the 1990s. All teaching staff are provided with rent-free accommodation no living accommodation benefits have ever been reported on forms of d That's the form you need to send to the revenue to report benefits in kind. Some teaching staff have no out-of-hours duties and no additional pastoral or emergency call-out duties. And Broadly, most staff teach during normal school hours and that's all they're required to do. No one knows why the living accommodation benefits have not been reported on P11Ds, other than it's always been done that way. The results of our investigations with the school provide some answers but often need a lot of digging by the school to find the answers. There may be some correspondence or meeting notes with the revenue in the past that show representative occupier status has been agreed with them, either for all teaching staff or for selected teaching staff. Some roles have changed or rent has started to be charged by the staff to the staff. PLMDs have not been prepared because uh, they never have been, and HMRC have never challenged this. New roles have arisen in the school that were not in existence before 1977. For example, IT teachers. Uh, the matter has never seriously been reviewed by the revenue or, or the employer. The outcome of all this, and the withdrawal of representative-occupier status, means that the school now has to review all staff on an individual basis to see whether they would be able to satisfy the better performance and customary tests given the circumstances. Those in roles that HMRC accept would qualify for exemption, and those on the margin possibly covered by the representative occupier exemption would need to be reviewed to see whether or not they would qualify for the statutory exemption. The roles with no or very little additional out-of-hours duties and responsibilities are unlikely to qualify for the exemption. These would need to be reported on P11Ds and Class 1A would also be due from the employer. This means additional costs to the administration for the employer and additional tax, where there had not been any previously, for the non-qualifying employees. So there is a need to manage this issue with the employees before it becomes an even bigger issue for the employer. These are just a few of the potential problems arising from the changes. I've not gone into all the issues, but merely highlighted a particular common one that we see. The next issue would be how to calculate the benefits, and that in itself is another big and complex
1: matter. Okay, so um, if I've understood that correctly, what what you're saying is that boarding schools who provide living accommodation and have not been reporting benefits in kind to date need to take some fairly urgent action to review this, uh, especially where they've been relying on the representative occupier exemption and as you as you say may have to start reporting benefits from the current tax year 2021-22 if they cannot claim or rely on the statutory exemption um and at the same time again as you mentioned this could be uh, this could be a difficult conversation to have with some staff if they're suddenly going to be facing a taxable benefit in kind yeah it's it's vital that they do this and, and
0: make sure that they're compliant going forward uh, indeed, this applies to any employer who provides living accommodation, not just boarding schools, uh, particularly where they've relied on the concessional treatment up to now. In addition, there's a note of warning here that many organisations possibly don't know that they've been relying on the concession for the exemption for the reasons I explained earlier. Uh, and that's because the people who have the knowledge have long since left the employer that the revenue documentation has not been preserved or can't be found. Hence the need to carry out the review to establish the correct position and to make sure employees know what's going to happen. Employers can always try to manage the way they deal with this going forwards by considering the potential benefit that might arise and try to minimise that where possible. This depends on the level of the benefit, of course, which at present is based on the cost of the property provided, including any capital improvements. Where the cost plus improvements is less than £75,000, the benefit is usually based on the gross rateable value, uh, but where it's over £75,000, the rules and calculations are much more complex uh, and it can be based on cost or market value depending on the specific circumstances. Of course, any rent that uh, is paid can be offset, but you can see that going from a tax-free to a taxable benefit might be very expensive in many situations. In addition, you could have the silly position where two employees uh, are provided with identical houses by the employer, and they could have widely different benefits, one based solely on the low gross rateable value of, say, something like £750 a year, whereas the other one, based on a market value, could be in the region of ten to £12,000 a year or more, depending on the exact uh, circumstances and value of the property. It's all the more reason, really, for reviewing the accommodation provision. Uh, to ensure both compliance and minimisation of tax liability and engagement with the uh, employees. Obviously, this is a large, wide-ranging and complex subject, but we have been helping many clients and non-clients with this and are always happy to engage with organisations to help them review these matters or
1: provide some technical support. Well, thanks, Robin, for explaining uh, what is very clearly a complex area, a uh, very complex subject matter, um, and I'm sure it's going to impact, uh, if, if not uh, recognised already, it needs to be reviewed because it will impact a significant number of employers. Um, that really brings us to the end of the episode today. Um, as I said, a very complex subject that uh, we've tried to cover in um, a recently short period of time. Uh, we hope you found it informative. Um, if you need any further information or advice, please don't hesitate to contact us. Thank you very much.
0: Tune in next time for another episode of Crowcasts. For more information about Crow, our services, industries we devise, and insights, visit crow.co.uk. We are an independent member of Crow Global, one of the top 10 accounting networks in the world. You can connect with us on social media by following Crow UK on LinkedIn or at Crow UK on Twitter.